Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 36 of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great episode lined up for you today, but before that, I want to take a moment to quickly remind you all to go ahead and take a look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss an episode of Conquering Columbus, and it really helps us out a lot. Our guest today is Dr. Gail Gordillo, and without giving away too much, she's the head of research for plastic surgery at Ohio State. And if you guys want to help her research out, there will be a link below in the show notes that you can click on, and it'll show you all the ways you can help uh, donate and support her research. And it'd be really cool if we get some conquerors on this and uh, help Dr. Gordillo out. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, Check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We're also brought to you by the Sundown Rundown Group. For those of you who aren't familiar with who they are, they connect entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, and talent through things such as monthly business idea pitch events around Ohio, workshops, classes, and co-working partnerships. All of these things are dedicated towards helping entrepreneurs take the next step in making their business idea happen. If you want to check out more about them, go to sundownrundown.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get this episode rolling. could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. This is your co-host, Mike, and today on the show we have Dr. Gail Gordillo. And uh, I'm going to kick it over to Josh for a quick uh, intro to Dr. Gordillo. Thanks, Mike. So Dr. Gordillo is an associate professor and the vice chair of research for the Department of Plastic Surgery at Ohio State. She's the medical director of wound services for the OSU Health System, which includes the oversight of clinical treatments along with research into how to better treat wounds. She's the founder and director of the Hemangioma. Did I pronounce that correctly? Hemangioma. Hemangioma and vascular malformation program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She's currently a standing member of the Bioengineering Technology and Surgical Sciences Study Section for the NIH. 
For those of us who aren't medical students out there, Dr. Cordillo is a premier doctor and researcher in the field of wound treatment. And her research interests include angiogenesis, or the formation of new blood cells, which occurs in cancer cells, among other things. New blood vessels, my apologies. Basically, she is way smarter than we are, and we are super excited to welcome her to Conquering Columbus. How are you today, doctor? I'm good. Thank you for having me. That's great. So you're talking about it's another long day. It's pretty much uh, however day your life is, 12 hours and morning to rise and then traveling on the weekends? Yes, or sometimes during the week, too. Yes, 12-hour day is pretty standard for me. Yeah, that's tough. So kind of to jump into things, we'll do it a little chronologically and talk about um, you graduated from Stanford, and many call that the Ivy League of the West, and just talk about what you studied there, what life was like at such a prestigious university. Um, Okay, so I studied psychology, and I went uh, saying I was going to be a doctor, so I went with the intention of being pre-med. Hated chemistry. I hated chemistry. And I hated the um, cutthroat nature of it, so I sort of wandered away a little bit. I got my, I ended up getting my degree in psychology, but obviously I did all the coursework to do the pre-med requirements. Um, and so I just didn't want to be in the rat race with all the people that were really intense about it, so I did psychology, and I have no regrets about that. Um, I played water polo, so I was actually a swimmer. Um, Stanford was their women's swimming team and their men's were like number one in the country or number two. Um, and rather than work really hard and not contribute, I played water polo, which was a club sport. It's now a varsity sport. So, um, but I played water polo, which was really fun. Um, I told people it was my sorority. I, that was Stanford women's water polo. Um, so that was a big focus. And then, um, I, I did sort of get back into the the pre-med track by my junior year and I and at that time I started doing a lot of research and that's where I really got hooked on research so um, you know there were great opportunities that were available to me I think because I went to such a prestigious place but you know really the thing that was most helpful were the people around you really inspire you Um, there's so many people doing so many great things Um, like I said it will inspire you to uh, reach pretty high and then I have some friends from there that um, absolutely the best thing I got out of my four years of college were these very enduring friendships. So we were all still very close. So what were, what were you researching early on at Stanford? <laughs> so uh, I did, I operated as an undergraduate student on monkeys and rabbits. And I did, and this was the start of my wound healing career. So on the monkeys, what we did was... Um, uh, their paws look just like our hands, and they grasp just like our hands. So I did tendon repairs in their paws, and then I um, fed them, which was actually quite challenging, Motrin or ibuprofen, and it decreases the amount of scar tissue formation around the tendon. So when you get scarring around a tendon, you lose motion. So um, we fed the monkeys this Motrin and then we and we did these tendon repairs and then I would actually get on my bicycle and ride down to Lockheed because I'm in Silicon Valley and these engineers there had a device called an Instrom tensiometer which is a big big machine that basically pulls things apart and tells you the force required to pull them apart and that's what I did I measured the force required to pull the tendon out of the tendon sheath and the force required to break the repair of the tendon repair that I did and we I did these on monkeys that, again, in a place like Stanford, they had a very active 
heart-lung transplant program. Now, this was in the 80s. No, nobody was doing it. Sanford was really probably one of the only places. So I operated on their monkeys that were donors. So they knew they were going to be sacrificed so that I could take the limb. And then I'd be riding around on my bike with my backpack with monkey paws in the back on my way to Lockheed in Silicon Valley. So that was, that was the start. And then the other thing I did was <laughs> I put breast implants in rabbits um, to see if that ibuprofen, which decreases scarring, could decrease the amount of scarring around the breast implants. So that was my inauspicious introduction to plastic surgery and wound healing. And obviously it stuck with me because here I am doing the same thing. So. Were there ever any uh, awkward moments with a backpack full of monkey paws? Um, <laughs> my roommates knew not to look in the backpack. <laughs> so. so that's awesome. I, I was expecting to hear a bunch of really complicated things I knew nothing about, but I think those are two of the coolest research studies that I've ever heard. So talk a little bit about, I'm always interested when somebody goes through something so prestigious like med school to school like Stanford, what was your childhood like and growing up, kind of where did, where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Cleveland. Um, my dad is a doc and my mom is a nurse. My father is an immigrant from Peru, so I'm a first-generation American, um, something I'm really actually quite proud of. And um, I was one of seven. So the other thing that was really fun about where I grew up was that we had a big house and a lot of kids and like everybody came and my mother is phenomenal and everybody we had people living or staying with us almost all the time so um my cousin lived with us for two years when she went to radiology technician school um I had two cousins one of my aunts died they were going to live with us and we just always had people over at our house and every kid at the neighborhood wanted to come to our house because there was always somebody to play with so it was really fun there were a lot of people in and out you know the door was always open like I said, my mom was a nurse. We had this family of four boys, and they would beat each other up and end up at my mother's doorstep. Um, but it, it was it was great, and um, you know that the, the uh, everybody in my family luckily is smart and it's fun, and um, you know I, I actually am quite proud of my family, and but definitely had a huge part in terms of who I am. Um, I was a swimmer, as I mentioned, and um, you guys were wrestlers. You know that those are some intense sports. And my mother would get up in the morning and take me to practice at, you know, quarter to six in the morning. When it's freezing cold out, I would go out and start the car for her so it would be warm. But, I mean, she's got seven kids, and she would, she would take me to practice. And, um, you know, she, they were both very supportive of helping us pursue our dreams. Yeah, and that Cleveland winter is no joke. So. No joke. <laughs> it's rough. So what do the other or the other six do currently? So um, one, two, three are attorneys. One is a financial planner. One is a uh, my sister got her master went to Michigan and then got her master's in journalism from Northwestern. So she um, was working for Crane's Business and now she works for. Uh, my hometown is Lakewood, so she works for Lakewood Public Schools and does all their public relations, the newsletter, stuff like that. And my other brother lives in Connecticut outside of New York, and he was doing some investment banking, and now I think he's doing some healthcare consulting. So That's pretty impressive. Yes. Pretty impressive family there. So with your, doc your dad was a doctor, your mom was a nurse. Did that push you towards the med medical route? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I, 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 like I said, I, I hated chemistry, and I sort of wandered away. Um, 
and I really wanted to make sure that the decision to go into medicine was mine and not because I felt like I had to do something that my dad wanted me to do. So I came back to it, but I, 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 I asked the question. I, you know, I really wanted to make sure that this was what I wanted to do. And probably the most important part of that was having those experiences in the lab. Because you can't, if all you ever knew was what you saw in books, nobody would be very excited about things. You have to go out and seek those experiences that can inform, you know, sort of what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And that's a really important thing for any undergraduate, I would say, is go out and get experience. Even if you do something and you don't like it, at least you know you don't like it. So uh, that, was, that was really pivotal for me. And then you ended up at med school here at Ohio State. And can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? And were there ever any situations as you're going through something that intense where you started to say, maybe this just isn't for me? Or were there any regrets going through um, that? Absolutely not. One of the things, um, like I said, I really stopped and thought hard about whether or not I wanted to go into medicine. So it helps that you at least go through the process. So that when I got here, I didn't have doubt. Um, one of the things that was super helpful in Ohio State, I don't even know if they still have it, but when I went through, there was a track called the Independent Study Program, which meant that you didn't go to class. They gave you a syllabus and some recommended reading lists, and you took these computerized self-tests to see if you were ready to take the real test, and that's all you did. So you were on your own. And the reason why I did that was because I liked research. So while I was a medical student, I did research when I very first came here, and um, in fact, I had when I, I worked, I graduated from college, and I worked for two years in the in Silicon Valley doing research. So, as you can tell, research is a common theme. And when I left, when I knew I was going to come to Ohio State to go to medical school, one of my um, one of the people that I worked with there, who's actually a very famous plastic surgeon, wrote a letter to the chief of plastic surgery here at Ohio State, saying this person's coming and she wants to do research. So. By the time I got here, before I even started medical school, I had met with the chief of plastic surgery, and he had found a place for me to do research. So one of the reasons why I did the independent study program was because I knew I wanted to do research. So I did research during my independent study training, and then I stopped and took a year, well, essentially seven months, um, and went to the National Institutes of Health and worked there. So um, it was... I, I still finished medical school in four years. So when you do the independent study program, you set the pace. And there were a fair number of students like me who had been out and not been in school the whole time. And so um, they were professionals and they wanted to get done and they you know, were not 22-year-olds. And so I was, you, you sort of find a group and you go through with them. And so I was in that group, but I stopped so that I could go to National Institutes of Health. It was very prestigious. They paid me a salary, which was great when you're a medical student. Um, and I also had a sister at Georgetown and a brother at the Naval Academy. So um, I took time and went to NIH, and um, so that was pretty different. So my, my, my trajectory through medical school was not a standard one at all. Um, uh, did lots of research and uh, still finished in four years. And, you know, certainly... I thought Ohio State was a great experience because it gave me that flexibility to have those um, experiences. And the other thing is when you get to um, the clinical rotations, they were very hands-on. They were they, it, When I went through, the, the medical students did a lot. You took call, you stayed in the hospital overnight, you, you were very hands-on. And compared to some of my peers when I would do rotations at other hospitals not affiliated with OSU, I felt like I had a really good education. 
So for those of the, out there that aren't familiar with NIH, can you talk a little bit about what that role is like? And Sure. So the NIH is, stands for the National Institutes of Health, and it is um, essentially the federal government's um, research and development arm related to healthcare. And um, it's, a, it's really the most sort of prestigious healthcare institute in the country. Um, it is funded by federal taxpayer dollars. Um, so they're very careful about how they spend it. Um, and so to be able to spend time at NIH and, and to see sort of the whole, there's a really, a, it's a whole campus. So it's not just one building. It's a quite a large campus, and they get very famous people that come through and speak. Um, so that was really fun. And then, um, you know, that's a, a badge of honor to have on your on your CV. And, and then when you become a faculty member like I am now to compete to get funding from the National Institutes of Health is actually very prestigious. So I'm on a study section that reviews all these grants. But in plastic surgery, there are about 5,000 plastic surgeons, and there are maybe, maybe 10 that have a grant. So I have grants from NIH. So um, that is a, from a, particularly in academic practice, that is a very big um, badge of distinction. So it's, it's, you know, you are reviewed by your peers and held to a very high standard in order to compete successfully. Definitely. I've heard that those grants can be really highly competitive. But um, what, my, what I'm curious about is, um, we've talked about plastic surgery quite a bit already, but when did you really decide that you wanted to go into plastic surgery? I know we mentioned while you were at Stanford, you were even working on plastic surgery research. So Yeah, um, that was really the what got me hooked was um, I was sort of, for lack of a better term, kind of a groupie in plastic surgery. So I would hang around, and they I got to go see surgeries as an undergraduate. I got to go see surgeries. You know, I did those those um, projects where we I operated on monkeys and I operated on rabbits, but I did a few other projects with some other faculty, and, um, you know, I, I really was fortunate to be able to see the whole breadth of what plastic surgeons do because there's a lot of misconceptions around. A lot of people think it's just facelifts and breast augmentation and tummy tucks, and there's, it, there's so much more that's, to, in my opinion, much more interesting. Right. I, actually, I was told once when I was considering being a doctor that, well, considering is kind of a vague word, but I was told that plastic surgery is a great way to go because um, I met someone who was a plastic surgeon, and they said that the, biggest, the best thing about being a plastic surgeon is getting the chance to really help people. You change people... When you go see, if you need your appendix out and you go see the surgeon for your appendix, he takes it out and you're better. You were sick and you're better. It doesn't change the way you view your life or the way you go through life. What we do in plastic surgery changes the way you view yourself and the way that others view you and the way and how you experience life. So it's very, very different in a good and a bad sense. You know, so I, I do not, I do some cosmetic, but very little. Um, but it, uh, I don't want to do cosmetic just for the sake of cosmetic. So one of, to me, one of the things that I like to do is breast reconstruction, where a woman wants to feel whole, um, and it, it's a perfect cosmetic uh, blend of a cosmetic or aesthetic procedure and a reconstructive procedure. Another good one is ears. You know, kids with prominent ears that get teased. You know, is that a, is that a cosmetic procedure? That kid's being teased and. His self-esteem is being damaged, but you can fix that with a pretty easy operation. That's a pretty cool thing. So. 
Yeah, I have a thumb where I tore my tendon in a practice one time. I can't bend it back like this, and I'm still self-conscious about it. I think I'll have you fix it after we get done with the interview. <laughs> I need some monkey tendon in there. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, actually, plastic surgeons, I don't do hand surgery, but plastic, I was trained to do it. So plastic surgeons do hand surgery as well. So that's why when I was doing the monkey tendons, that's certainly well within the scope of plastic surgery. So kind of talk about... You can tell you're extremely passionate about what you were doing as you were going through med school, so that probably made it much easier. But were there any difficult parts where you were juggling research with studying on your own time and there wasn't really a structure? How were you able to maintain such discipline? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the big thing is you. It, it's a double-edged sword. So, yeah, I got through in four years, but I could see people around me that were on the five-year plan for sure. Um you know, I think that period, one of the things that helped was I worked for two years before I went to medical school. And one of the things that you learn is what it's like to not have very much money because I, I was living in California and I, I knew if, my, if I had to ask my parents to support me, I had to go home. So I'm like, no, no, I'm not going home. So I didn't have very much money. So you, those are important life lessons. You're like, you know what? I, I, I don't like being poor. I mean, it was a relative term, but literally I had pennies left in my paycheck at the end of every two weeks. And, um, and you also appreciate what privilege it is to be a student. I had a girlfriend come and visit me, and when you're a student, you go, oh, I might not go to class today. Well, when you work, you can't just not show up for work. So um, you realize what a privilege it is to be a student, and I, I don't think, while medical school pushes you pretty hard, I push myself pretty hard. So that didn't, um, there wasn't any time you know, where I felt like really overwhelmed. I would not say that was the case. Um, probably my biggest challenge in medical school, my hands down. So um, I originally applied to do head and neck surgery. So to become a plastic surgeon, you can go through general surgery or any other surgical training and complete that training and then apply for plastic surgery. When I was a student at Ohio State, general surgery was kind of a hot mess, and I just thought, I don't want to do general surgery. It's painful, and they, I mean, when I was a student, they fired three out of the four residents in the second year class, okay? It was like, whoa. So I thought, I'm not doing that, and so I applied in head and neck surgery, also very competitive, or ENT, um, and I actually matched in ENT at the top program in the country, but the problem was... I was engaged, and my fiancé could not go to St. Louis, where I matched at Washington University. So then I had to decide, what am I going to do? And what I didn't know was the year that I was applying for residencies was the first year that Ohio State had um, a, a program where you could match into plastic surgery out of medical school. So I didn't know that. They only told you if you applied to general surgery. Well, I didn't apply to general surgery. So... The, luckily, the head and neck match was an early match. I found out in the beginning of January, and the, the plastic surgery match went through February. So I scrambled and applied to the plastic surgery program at Ohio State, and luckily I got in. But that was pretty trying, because I, either, I had to decide, basically, was I going to go, was I going to walk away from my engagement and go to wash you and be a head and neck surgeon, or was I going to try and find an alternate path? And the thing that I, I, obviously I found my alternate path at Ohio State, but what I felt worst about was the fact that m 
my decision might impact other women that were applying to that program at WashU. Because when, when you leave a program, like I, you, when you go in the, we call it the match, you sign a contract that says, I'm going to go there. And they were kind enough to let me out of it. Um, and that's hands down, that's what I felt the worst about, was that I felt I had maybe muddied the water or, or lessened the chances for other women applicants after me because I sort of left them in the lurch. But they were very gracious. So you can, can you talk about what that residency experience was like? Uh-huh, yeah, wow. It's very different now. So when I was a resident, there was no limitation on how many hours you worked. So um, now there's a cap. And that cap gets enforced very closely. Like, literally, if you do not comply with the, the, the number, the maximum duty hours is what they call it, your program can be um, disaccredited. It's a big deal. I mean, they are, they are serious as a heart attack about that. When I trained, no such rules. And general surgery was the worst of the worst. Maybe the only one worse was neurosurgery. But general surgery was bad. So... Um, you would come in somewhere between 5.30 and 6 when you're the intern. You took every third night call or every other night call, and you would leave about a good night was 8.30, even when you were post-call. A bad night was 10. So you would leave, so you would be here a lot, a lot. And when you were on call... You would cover the emergency room, and then you'd have about 90 patients on the floor that you would be taking care of. Um, I took care of a lot of patients that died. I, you know, you just, it's, I remember, the hardest thing about being a resident is you can be working 120 hours, and if you need to work 122, you're lazy. That's the thing that just blows people away. You're like, wait, I'm working so hard. I'm like, no, no, you didn't do this. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a mind-bending concept. You know, you, you think you're working really hard, but you didn't work hard enough. So, um, it, it, and you're tired. I mean, just, you can't even imagine how tired you are. And uh, you just, there's a, there's a lot of camaraderie with it. I mean, you really are going through some serious, serious trials and tribulations. Um, you know, right off the bat, pretty much who's going to make it and who's not. I can remember after our first night on call, there was another woman in the program and she's sitting in the hallway in a chair crying and you're like, that is not a good sign. So, um, and she, she lasted like a few months. I mean, it was, it was, when I trained, the intern that started on the vascular surgery service quit the program like three years in a row. It's brutal. I mean, I, I just can't tell you how hard it was. I mean... It's like the Navy SEAL of doctors. It, it's, it, it's, you just don't, you don't, you don't sleep. And so people say to me now, are you okay operating when you're tired? I'm like, it means nothing to me. Of course I'm okay operating when I'm tired. I, 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 you, that's what a residency is for. I mean, you, it means nothing. I can operate on no sleep. That's fine. You know, that's, that's why you do it. That's impressive. So... Do you think that the process now, you said it was changed a little bit, um, is set up more optimally, or do you think that that trial by fire, so to speak, was was good for residents? So, uh, no, there was a lot of, um, we used to call it scut, so you did a lot of scut. Um, there was a lot of labor, like when I was an 
when you're a junior resident and a trauma comes in, especially when you're the intern, there's a lot of sitting around while the patient's in the CT scanner. You basically just sit because you can't, because that patient is critically ill, and so you can't leave them, but you're just sitting there. So it's not terribly productive as opposed to, you know, um, now we have a lot of physician assistants and um, nurse practitioners, and because of the duty hour limits, if they need somebody to take call, now a lot of residents can moonlight if they're allowed to by their residency and get paid for that, where before you just had to do it, so you didn't have a choice. Um, I think the residents right now with their limitations are certainly very well trained. I I know in plastic surgery, we have a great group of residents and they're very competent. Um, they, uh, when, when there was that first transition, when there wasn't 80 hours to when there was, the residents, when they come to plastic surgery, everybody thinks it's easy and it's really not. Um, if you're up, so you take call from home, but when you're up, you're usually up doing something. You're usually up sewing a lot of lacerations in the emergency room or you're up in the operating room, so you're up and you're doing stuff. And I could see when they would transition from, particularly in general surgery with those limits on duty hours, they would have this thing called a night float. So somebody was there every night, so you left. So many of these residents never knew what it was like to stay up all night and operate and then work the next day. That's all I did. Um, But so when they got to plastic surgery, they might be up all night and it just floored them. It just, they... It was, a, it was an experience they'd never had before, and they're already four years into their training. And I had done it plenty, plenty of times. So um, you just, uh, I, I think they do very well with, with the training limits now. I don't think it hurts anything. Um, what is a little bit different and actually a little sad is that I don't, there's more of a shift mentality and less of an ownership mentality. So I'm going to pass the baton, and the problem is not mine anymore. And when you were, when I trained, and how certainly how I feel now as a physician is, you know, if that patient is having a problem, that is my patient, and I need to stick with that patient until that problem is resolved. There isn't that same, I don't think, sense of ownership because you have a night float, or I have to go home. And so that's, a, that's different. And, and even now you see there's a group of physicians called hospitalists, which are internal medicine docs that work in shifts. There are now what they call acute care surgeons, which are generally general surgeons that work in shifts. So the shift mentality has come in just to accommodate that sort of crazy work hour, um, but you lose that sense of ownership of the patient. So coming from completely left field on understanding what residency is like, I mean, obviously the hours are crazy. What are the day-to-day like? Is it like a mentorship more? Is it like... It's like an apprenticeship. Okay. And so the more experienced the resident, the more independent you let them perform. So if you have somebody really junior, I'm right with them all the time, and I'm asking them, did you do X, did you do Y, did you do Z? Whereas with somebody who's really senior, you know, I'm going to assume they did X, Y, and Z, and they're going to tell me about it, so... So as they grow, you kind of take your hands off more. Exactly. It's sort of graded responsibilities. So with that being said, were there any significant individuals during your time that really played a big impact on who you are today and the way that you approached your entire... So um, I can't speak enough about mentorship 
Um, particularly, um, academic medicine is really pretty convoluted and very hierarchical. So I mentioned that um, a, a fairly famous plastic surgeon wrote a letter for me. And that letter went to a guy named Bob Ruberg. Bob Ruberg was the chief of plastic surgery at the time. He had just become the chief. That was 1986. Bob became my mentor. He is still my mentor. Um, you know, and there's sort of mentors and sponsors. And Bob was really a sponsor. Bob would open doors for me. He would make things possible for me that somebody who's really vested in your career will do. Um, and so um, absolutely he has been a critical part of my success. He, he um, has helped a lot. I had another, and, and like I said, I, I just, and it's not easy to be a good mentor. There's not a lot out there. I had another really good mentor. From, so Bob was a clinical mentor. I also have had scientific mentors. And my first, I had uh, one mentor when I, when I came to OSU and I did research as a medical student. He was pretty good. Um, and then I spent more time after I did my general surgery training. So I trained for general, in general surgery for four years. I took three years and went into the lab. And that gentleman was a guy named Charlie Oros. And he was definitely a mentor because he taught me thinking like a doctor and thinking like a scientist are two very different ways of thinking, very different ways. And just like you need to be trained to be an athlete, you need to be trained to be a scientist. And, you need, and so, so I had two people to train me to think in two different ways. Um, and, and, uh, and Charlie, who was my scientific mentor, taught me how to write a grant. So I actually got my first NIH grant when I was in the lab with Charlie. So you can get them. Um, it, it's a tr I got a training grant from NIH. And I got some other grants. But somebody has to teach you how to write these grants. It is not an intuitive thing at all. Um, and so Charlie was really critical. Charlie got me lab space. You know, the, to really be a mentor, you really have to want to foster somebody's career. Um, Charlie was the one that told me, and, and as much as I like Bob, he didn't do science, so he couldn't really guide me on scientific things. So Charlie told me when I was a uh, senior resident about to finish, and we knew I was going to stay on faculty at Ohio State, Charlie's like, you need to talk to, to this guy who was opening the Heart Lung Research Institute and make sure you have lab space. It's like, oh, okay. So I went and talked to Pascal Goldschmidt, and that's how I got lab space. Um, but that's something where, you know, a, a really good mentor will help you in many ways, both personally and professionally. They really have all your interests at heart. And so Charlie was another big one. And then when I got put in the lab, I got put in the lab with this guy named Chandon Sen. And Chandon is kind of a mentor. It's an odd relationship. He wants to do clinically relevant work, and I want to do good science. So he's his PhD, and I'm a clinician. So I help him with his clinical relevance and his clinical... Um, it's very hard for a PhD to just walk into a clinical environment and, and make it work. There are some sort of unspoken rules and understanding the pressures on clinicians that most PhDs, if they're gonna walk in, they're gonna get what I call the Heisman stiff arm. No, okay? So you have to be able to enter that arena in a way that's effective and not gonna put people off. Um, so I help Tana with that, and then he helps me. I wanna do competitive science, so he helps me with that. So it, it's a partnership. He teaches me science and I teach him clinical things. So can you talk a little bit about those different ways of thinking that you mentioned? And yeah, how it's different so to they're think? very different. Um, I think, I think the, the, the actual terms are inductive and deductive reasoning. So when I see a patient as a, as a doctor, 
I come up with a list of, okay, what are the possibilities, all right? And, and then I have to do whatever exams or x-rays or whatever I need to do to rule out those other possibilities and make my diagnosis. When, when I see, when I'm in the lab, one of the things that's really important that you don't have in the clinical side are controls. What are your positive controls and your negative controls? And how do you interpret that data given all the potential um, possibilities? Uh, you don't have it. It's different. You don't have positive and negative controls and quite the... Um, the different potential outcomes. I mean, a lab value is a lab value is a lab value. So it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit different. And, and um, I, I'm trying to think of how best to describe it, but like I said, it, it, they're not the same. They're really not the same. They are very different ways of thinking. And um, I did my surgery residency for a couple of years and wasn't in the lab, and, and you really kind of lose it. It's sort of like you've been asleep for eight hours and you got to shake your head and, and rig out the cobwebs and, and figure out how to get back to it. Um, so they're very different ways of thinking and, and very different levels. So the common, and I review grants a lot, so the common mistake for clinicians is to go from A to B and skip a whole lot of steps and just make this conclusion. And a scientist will, will look at a very, they will ask very tight, focused questions around a single event or phenomenon and not skip a lot of steps. So clinicians tend to jump to different conclusions without all the data like you would do in science it's 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 very different it's very different right and that makes sense you know because if you're a doctor you can't be looking at every single step along the way because right. it might be too late by that point right? well you'll you'll there's so many potential you you almost make these associations so if i know that somebody's got fever and uh you know a swollen tense wound I don't need to know all the steps that led to that. I know they have infection and I probably need to take them to the OR, you know. Whereas with science, it's so rigorous that you have to make sure that you've answered the, the, next, the next most proximal question before you're going to go to the, the conclusion. I mean, it's built all on everything being validated first before you get to that conclusion. So it's very different ways of thinking. And especially for surgeons, there aren't a lot of surgeon scientists because a surgeon's like, what's the problem? I'm going to fix it now. And they want answers now. And science is very slow and doesn't always give you answers despite your best efforts at hard work. So it's, it's, it's a hard mentality for surgeons to adjust to. Right. So um, can you talk a little bit about what your research is doing currently and what sure. that's focusing on? Sure. So... Um, I have two spheres of research. One is um, the wound healing research. Um, and that is, there's actually a lot going on in there. And that is my partnership with Dr. Sen, um, where he, he does the science and I do the clinical parts. And we are, for example, tomorrow we're going to um, Washington, D.C. We're going to meet with the Department of Defense. So we're working, and we work with companies to help do product development, but also, you know, the way that we do product development is to find the academic, what's the mechanistic and the interesting things that are really going to move wound healing forward. So when we work with companies or whenever we do any studies, one of the things that we don't want to do is be a site for another company that's just testing a product 
and, and it's just sort of moving patients through the system, and I don't feel like I'm moving the field forward or I personally am contributing to that innovation. So in our program, we are very focused on innovation in terms of the wound stuff and the um, and a tangible, you know, advancing the field and having really ideally a product. So uh, some of the things that we're working on, um, we work with a company that has, they're called electroceutical dressings. So these dressings are actually a small, they're like a small battery. They are cloth that is imprinted. It's a textile, so it's got zinc and silver on it. And that zinc and that silver makes a tiny little current. And, and one of the things that's happening in research now, even on a national level, is there is energy everywhere. And you can charge that or make that um, work like a battery. You can hold up your cell phone and you'll charge it. Okay, So they're, they're, we are being bombarded with energy waves. But those energy waves do a couple things. They can provide energy to the cells so that in order to heal, your cells need a certain amount of energy. And so it can increase the energetics of the cells. They can also, one of the things when you have a wound is bacteria get in there, and the bacteria can talk to each other, okay? And when they talk to each other, they form these networks that are extremely effective, and they're coated with this stuff called biofilm. So, and they, one of the ways that they talk is they make this, these fine little electrical, these fine little wires, it's almost like a spider's web, and they can communicate across that. And a lot of it is people think about proteins to communicate. You can communicate with electrons, okay? And so when you disrupt them with an electrical battery, you can disrupt their ability to communicate. It's like cutting their telephone wires. They can't communicate anymore, and you can disrupt this infection, okay? So that's one of the things that we're working on. Um, Another thing that we're working on is there is a company in Mount Sterling, Ohio, 25 miles down the road. They are the oldest and largest manufacturer of limb prostheses in the United States, Family-owned. Nobody's ever heard of it, I'm sure. They came to us a couple years ago, and they wanted to apply for their first grant. They had never been able to get a grant from the government. So this was a VA grant. And the grant was specifically for people with above-knee amputations. They wanted to develop a prosthesis for that patient population. And what's challenging about that patient population is the residual limb tends to be short, and they need to have, the prosthesis needs to fit snugly so that it doesn't come off. So if they're trying to be really active, so think of somebody like Oscar Pistorius, who's running, right? So here you guys, you've got Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and they've got an above-knee amputation, and their prosthesis, they can't get a tight fit, and they can't be active um, for a couple reasons. It gets sweaty, and so the liner and the socket gets loose and wet, and it doesn't stick very well. Um, they can't, it, it's relatively short, it abuts up against their buttocks. So they wanted something to help specifically this patient population. So the company came to us and um, they wanted to do a vacuum prosthesis. So what they were concerned about, and rightfully so, was what happens to the blood flow when you put a vacuum in. And it's a pretty strong vacuum. We actually use vacuums clinically now to help wound healing, but this vacuum is about five times stronger than that. So we, with them, designed a prosthesis that we could embed sensors that would measure blood flow. And we actually had these patients walk on a treadmill, get their heart rate up, and look at their blood flow. And so what we found was that, um, you know, and we would have them, you know, we would measure the blood flow. So the vacuum was helpful when they were active. But when they weren't active, it was 
it was not helpful and it was diminishing their blood flow. So we worked with this company and what they did was they put a gyroscope in it so that when the patient is active, the vacuum is up and when they slow down, the vacuum lets off. So, and that was a real breakthrough. That was actually one of my favorite projects because people were so happy and something that we did that really was not complicated, not, but it had never been done before in a prosthesis. And that's the really the fun of bringing people who can do science to meet a need. And so we're actually, you know, that's one of the things that has gotten the attention of the Department of Defense. The other thing is the work that I'm doing with Gary. That, that is how I met you guys. And so that work is, one of my other hats is I review um, all the skin and wound problems in the, in the hospitals. Um, and in order for us to, the best way to really document a wound is a picture, hands down. I can tell you about it, but it doesn't mean anything until you see a picture. And patients that get these problem wounds that don't heal generally tend to be sick. They're not, healthy people don't get non-healing wounds. So, um, for the most part. So, it takes a lot of time to get these, these um, the wound documentation. There are actually about 16 or 17 required elements in order, and the federal government is so in tune to these that particularly in places like nursing homes or Dodd Hall, the rehab facility, if you don't document every single one, um, basically you have to have a 95% compliance with the accuracy of your documentation. And if you're not, they will dock your pay going forward one or 2%. So there's big, and that's in the rehab facilities. In the nursing homes, they just say, you're not in compliance and we're not going to pay you. So then they shut it down. So there's lots of money in play and it's very difficult to get these measurements. So um, I worked with another faculty member at Ohio State where we take a picture and in that picture, it will measure precisely what the area is of the wound. And then it will tell you, so the other thing that they want to know is they want you to describe the wound and what's at the bottom of the wound, what kind of tissue is exposed. And so this will do it automatically and just populate it in your electronic medical record so that it saves you a lot of time and effort. Then, you know, so that's the technology that we're working on. And then we hope to be able to use that to do some predictive modeling about wound healing as well. So that's, that's some of the wound healing stuff. And then the last part I'll talk about is my, my hemangioma research, which is, um, um, as a plastic surgeon, these, they're tumors, they're, and they are the most common soft tissue tumors in infants. And half of children, that, and most of them occurred in the head and neck, and half of kids that get them will have some residual deformity. So very much in the, in the realm of plastic surgery. For some kids, it can threaten normal development or their life. And the treatment for these are, when I first started, steroids, a chemotherapy agent called vincristine, or another drug called alpha interferon. And serious, life-threatening side effects occur with any of those. So I'm like, we have to find a better alternative so that, A, kids can get treated, and when they take treatment, it doesn't threaten their life. Um, another Treatment has come in the interim called propranolol, but it doesn't always work, and not every kid can get it. And so I've been working on a um, berry therapy for this. So um, the first thing that I had to do was find a biomarker that, that will tell you when the tumor is growing and when it's not. So I just uh, submitted that for publication. So I found that biomarker. Um, so nobody's done that yet. And then I have a, um, a berry therapy 
And one of the things that's different about, um, there are lots of people out there working on nutritional approaches. Everybody wants to give it to you by mouth. Well, it turns out when you eat these natural products, which in cell culture experiments work great, but when you give them to people, they work not so great. Obviously, when you eat them, they have to go across your, your digestive tract. And what happens in the stomach? Lots of acids, breaks it down, more digestion in the, in the gut. And so what you absorb is A, not what you ingested, and B, very much less than what you took in originally. So the approach for researchers has been, okay, well, you didn't get very much. I'm going to give you more and more and more. So they try and give you sort of abnormally high levels of those food products. What I did was put it on the skin, and then we watch it get absorbed, and it actually works pretty well that way. So, so that's where we're going with that. We're working on trying to treat these tumors with those berries. Mike's going to have half his dinner on his skin tonight, and I'm going to have to watch that happen. How much I tell yeah, him. Just lay in the stuff. I don't have any tumors right now that you can get rid of. Like, he's like, no, the pizza, the pizza when the it goes in your skin, <laughs> it's better for you. Well, that's right. That's, no, that's incredible. So do you put the, the berry uh, therapy, as you called it, on, on the tumor then? Like oh, directly? That, 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 we've done it in mice. We've not done it in humans yet. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's amazing. Interesting. Uh, so you mentioned earlier also um, angiogenesis is one of your... Right. Subjects, so, so, so the, the angiogenesis is common to both the tumors and the wound healing. So both are dependent on angiogenesis to occur. In the wound healing, it's a beneficial thing. You want angiogenesis in order for there to be healing. In the tumor, it's a not a beneficial thing. That's what makes the tumors is angiogenesis. So um, a lot of what I do is regulation of angiogenesis. That's the common underlying mechanism. Right, and that and angiogenesis, which is um, the generation of new blood vessels, correct? Correct. That occurs in everything from like a common wart to cancer cells, correct? Correct. Cool. And so, I guess my question is: is has any of your research looking at angiogenesis for for the treatment of cancer? Has that led anywhere? Did the bear, how do the berries affect the uh, tumor exactly? So. Uh, I have some papers on that, and one of the, the obvious one is um, berries are. You, you might hear a lot of people talking about antioxidants. So these berries are potent antioxidants, and what I've shown is that the tumor cells have um, uh, a a protein called NADPH oxidase, and it makes hydrogen peroxide. Believe it or not, so in these tumor cells, there are very high levels of NADPH oxidase, and they make super high levels of hydrogen peroxide. And so, you know, um, they should die when they have these high levels of oxidants, but they don't. Um, There are a bunch of compensatory mechanisms, which allows them to be tumors. Um, But the berries work one way is through their antioxidant effects. So, um, and that we published, so. Um, that's, that's the obvious way. And that's the way that most people are looking at them. So we're looking at some other mechanisms that I haven't published yet. Um, but I think there are other ways in which it works that will also be effective. Um, so I, I think it's going to work. I, I can't disclose yet, right. but I think it's going to work. Totally understandable. I, I think it's going to work on other tumors as well Great. for different reasons. Yeah. I'm kind of geeking out over here because I was originally, I, I was a biology student at Ohio state and I was in the pre-med track, but, uh, chose a different path but um, one thing that I actually saw a story on that I just thought of asking you about was that I they were researching I saw a research paper about brain tumors 
and treating them through injection of polio, like a modified polio virus. Yeah. So have you, have you seen anything in that? Sure. So that's, that's what they call gene therapy. And actually, when I, when I was in the lab, I, I did four years of general surgery and three years in the lab with this guy named Charlie Oros, and I did gene therapy work. And so I'm quite familiar. And they use it because viruses are very adept at getting into cells. And so um, it's a tool. That's the best way to think of it. Gene therapy is a tool. Um, it's just a way to get you into the cell. It's not, they call it a therapy, but it's what it delivers that is actually the therapeutic. So it's really a delivery mechanism. Um, and there was a lot of hope with it, but again, it gets down to that issue in science where, okay, just because you can get in the cell, have you found the magic button that makes the whole thing go? And, and in biology, there are a lot of redundancies. Your body's really smart. They're not going to have those kind of... There's, you, you have to be really smart to figure out what's the one vulnerability because usually there's going to be redundant systems. So it's very hard for people to find that one vulnerability. Um, so that's, that's why you have to keep asking these harder and harder questions. I was a visiting professor at um, a, a program in Pennsylvania, and I, my very first paper that got me one of my first grants was I showed if you block this one protein you could prevent the hemangiomas from forming in mice. And they're like, you're done. I'm like, no, because I blocked the protein when I injected the cells. I blocked it before the tumor even started. I'm like, that's not how we see it clinically. You only see it once the tumor's already there. Um, so, you know, you have to keep asking questions. But again, as a, as a surgeon, this person was like, no, no, you're done. I'm like, no, no, just getting started. So it's a very different way of thinking. And, and, and you know, I, I pursued it and pursued it and pursued it, um, but yeah, it's, it's a very different way of thinking. I'm, I'm bringing it around. The one thing about a surgeon is I'm always going to bring it around to the application, and we're getting that, we're getting around to that, so. So you've had an amazing journey to where you are today. You've achieved so much, and you have these grants and everything. From, from when you started getting out of your residency to today, can you talk a little bit about what that journey's been like and kind of what separated you in your field and helped you reach such a high level? Um, you, you, you have to have a real passion for it. Um, I would tell you that the easy way out for me, the easy way out, go into private practice, make more money, work less hours. That's it. That, when I became a tenured professor, people were like, aren't you afraid you might not get tenure? And I'm like, hey, they don't want to tenure me. I'll just go and work in private practice. You know, it, it's... It's not what I want, obviously. Clearly, I, I think it, my passion for research has probably come across. Um, so you have to want it really bad because uh, there are a lot of, like I said, I can work less and make more money. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of misunderstanding about surgeons don't really know what scientists do. Um, the amount of work and the amount of time that it takes to make what to them may seem like small incremental steps, but they're, you know, it, it, it's a really Herculean task to move the field forward. Um, and to have the ability to do that, that is what excites me. Um, it doesn't mean I don't want to be a doctor, but you kind of, it's sort of like, a lot of docs will tell you when they see you up on the stage giving the talk, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. You say, okay, come and do research with me. And then all of a sudden, they're not so interested. So you, you really have to have 
a very strong passion. You have to make sacrifices to get there. There's no other way around it. I tell people I have two jobs, and if you're not willing to have two jobs, you can't, and, and it's not that you can't contribute, it's just at what level you want to contribute. So if you want to contribute at this really high level, you can't be averse to hard work. And conversely, you can't be averse to, you know, sometimes I don't go, I had tickets to go to a concert, and I had to do my NIH grant reviews, and I like, I just ate it. I just couldn't go. Um, you can't, that can't, that can't bother you. And I, you guys were athletes. It's, I think athletics is a great example. You understand setting goals, making priorities, making sacrifices. Athletics is a great, great example for this. And uh, having, I was a very serious swimmer. Um, I just think it really, it gets you used to not sleeping and working hard. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's really the best example. If you were an athlete and you had a goal, what would you be willing to do to get there? And that's, that's the best analogy. You have to want it bad because it's, it's so easy. Believe me, I've had those times when I said, oh, man, my life could be so much easier if I didn't do this. But, and, and, you know, uh, it, it, but you can't be in a vacuum. I have two children. Um, you know, I, I still, I would not, if, if I could have more success but my kids would be messed up, I would choose less success and happy, healthy kids. I think my kids are healthy and well-adjusted. Um, and it's, it's not an easy thing to, to navigate that. I mean, when you get older and you have children and all of a sudden your priorities change. But I did a lot of it after they went to sleep. So the, the no sleep part is real. You really burn the midnight oil. It just depends how bad you are. Yeah, it's funny when you're talking about the residency and putting a limit on the hours. I was like, man, I think Coach Ryan runs the residency program because they, we had to do the same thing with our practices. They had to tell me, yeah. look, buddy, you got to let them go home sometimes. They got to eat some food. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, athletics is really, I, I think athletics is an analogy for life. I mean, and many athletes are successful because you learn those, you learn team building, you learn prioritizing, setting goals, like I said, making sacrifices, you know, athletics is a great analogy for this and for anything. And what I think some people miss throughout their life that, you know, Mike and I have been fortunate to feel through athletics and you through everything that you've done in your life is setting a, such a high goal that you never think you'll reach and then putting in the hardest work you've ever done in your life and then accidentally reaching it and then you it's like the most fulfilling thing ever and I don't think yeah Yeah. and I don't think a lot of people ever get a chance to feel that so they never understand how you can make sacrifices like that which is you know really what I think it comes down to but another question that I had it seems like your ability to be in research and hands-on at the same time and your doctor role has played a pivotal role in the innovation that's coming out of everything that you're doing are there a lot of people like you in, in your field or do you wish there were more there's not a lot of people like me. It, it happens because I have this really solid foundation, okay? So um, without that foundation, it's hard to make those advances, and I, I don't know how else to say it, but you, you can't just... You have to really have a solid foundation. You, you have to understand how the, the minute details that go into getting from A to B even in, in my, the WoundWise software that I'm doing uh, with, with Gary Ross and his company is, if I didn't understand all the steps in between, 
I couldn't come up with a product that's very effective. Um, and it's the same with science. If you don't understand all the steps in between, you're not going to get that goal that you want because you're getting, you know, a result that you can't interpret or basically. So, so there aren't a lot of shortcuts. That's, that's the best thing that I can tell you. I mean, you have to have a really solid foundation to be able to make that kind of success. Absolutely. So, um, as we start to wrap up here, a couple questions we wanted to ask you about Columbus and OSU in, in general. As our podcast is called Conquering Columbus, we like to focus a little bit on the city. And um, it seems like there's always a lot of innovative changes and things coming out of Ohio State. I think just last year there was, um, I remember, a artificial meniscus implant and a couple other things coming out. But what do you think makes the Wexner Center stand out in the school in general as a premier research institute? So, hands down, to me, there's two things. One is this high clinical volume. And um, and you have high clinical volume on the same campus. I mean, Ohio State, when we have resident applicants, it's such a resource-rich environment. You have to have somebody like me that can connect that clinical to the basic science. Um, but that clinical is there. Many medical schools are not on the same campus as their as their basic science. So we work with engineering and with vet med and um, biomedical informatics. I mean, having that, the, you cannot put a price on proximity in so many ways. My office is not in this building where I see clinical patients. My office is next to my lab where I can, that, that spontaneity and that free flow of ideas, um, proximity really matters in many, many ways. It doesn't, it doesn't always have to be um, bricks and mortar, but the fact that we're close, it, you know, it, that kind of proximity means something. Whereas if I had to go five minutes in a car or five miles, that drops it a lot. So that proximity is really huge. Um, and that, I think, is the strength of Ohio State. It is the ability to tap into this wealth of uh, patients um, with a solid, you know, we have supercomputing, we have huge, um, you know, we have great engineering and great, I mean, vet med is really important. You know, you can't do everything in a human. Um, so there's just so much stuff that's here. We have a great children's hospital, but having it all in proximity matters. Um, and I think, I think that Wexner benefits from that. You know, one of the other things that I would say is we can't do this without um, people. So there are, and I think people, I think both my patients, you know, for the most part, we don't have a hard time recruiting patients to do these studies. I think the people of Ohio uh, want to help others, and that's how we present it. Um, I think the people that work here are committed to the academic mission. I think that's important to them. I think that, you know, they could maybe go somewhere else where, uh, they might make a little more money, or that it might not be quite so challenging. But they they believe in the academic mission, and I think that's an important. And for any aspiring doctors out there or med students who want to come to Ohio State, do you have any advice for them or words of wisdom before we wrap wrap the show? Mm, you know, it, it. I tell them everything's here. Literally, the hardest part is figuring it out is what's, what do I need, where is it, who do I talk to. There is everything here. I tell everybody, the world, at OSU, the world is your oyster. I mean, this is here. This is a very resource-rich place um, from both 
you know, equipment and people. Um, you just got to figure out how to put it all together. Okay. And one last question before I kick it over to Josh for a recap. But um, for any of our listeners out there um, wondering how they can contribute to your research or any research going on at the Wexners, is there a good place to go? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually do have a development fund that takes contributions. Um, probably, I would say, if you, I'm trying to think, I don't, uh, you can email me. <laughs> you can always email me. I'm definitely willing to talk to people that want to patronize or support the research. Um, and then uh, you can call Plastic Surgery, 614-293-8566. Um, those are probably the best ways. Perfect. And as long as you don't mind, we'll have those linked in the show notes for anybody listening sure. so they make sure that they have all that information. And uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And uh, Dr. Video, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to kick it over to Josh just to recap the show and key lessons. Yeah, that was great. Um, everything that you covered and just hearing your journey and, and to where you are today and everything you got going on is very inspiring and definitely appreciate your time, like Mike said. Anybody wants more information on what's going on, like Mike said, we'll have it linked in the show notes. And anything that you want to check out about the Wexner will be at wexnermedical.osu.edu. And then if you like this episode, please write us on iTunes. Check us out on all of our social media pages to keep up with date on everything that we're doing. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. Before we let you go today, I want to remind you all, go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here on the show. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, Check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We're also brought to you by the Sundown Rundown Group. For those of you who aren't familiar with who they are, they connect entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, and talent through things such as monthly business idea pitch events around Ohio, workshops, classes, and co-working partnerships. All of these things are dedicated towards helping entrepreneurs take the next step in making their business idea happen. If you want to check out more about them, go to sundownrundown.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the show. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.